0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah Lutheran Church's Bible study class, led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the book of Revelation.
1: Enjoy. All right, let's get into it. All right, so we are continuing in uh, working through the church at Pergamum. And so I kind of put contextually just that at the very top of the uh, lesson for today where he says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So we're picking it up now in verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So notice Jesus starts out with a phrase that is common in the Gospels, where he would say, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, you know, one of the things that's very true about human beings is that just because we have ears, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can hear, right? We can hear. But, of course, that doesn't mean that we do hear. And when the Bible talks about the idea of hearing, what he's actually talking about is the idea that you take it in. So, you know, there is a, maybe some some people distinguish between the difference between hearing and listening. So listening is the verb that describes the action of your information going in your ears. All right. But the idea of hearing really actually is that you absorb what is said, and that you take it to heart, and that it makes some kind of difference. And so very often, Jesus would use that phrase with respect to important things that he was going to say, or a parable that he wanted them really to, to sort of grab onto, that that he wanted them to really get it, then he would use that phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear. So you remember what the uh, the pattern is as Jesus is talking to John, dictating to John what he's supposed to write, that there's a kind of a pattern in terms of speaking to the churches. So the, the pattern consists of identifying in the church the thing that they are to be commended for, right? Sort of, I got good news and I got bad news, right? So the good news is here's what you're to be commended for. The bad news is, is here's where... You are struggling. Here's where there are some things that need to be corrected in some way, and then a, a, a sort of a blessing at the end. And so the blessing is what we pick up here in verse uh, verse 17. He says, "To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone, etc." So, who is victorious? Who are the victorious? It's the believers, right? It's the people that have remained faithful serving in that church, but they remain faithful in their their faith in Jesus, trusting in him, no matter what the implications of that would be, no matter what the consequences of that would be. And so he says, that's what makes you victorious, is the fact that you have embraced what Christ has done for you. And I think that's an important distinction there. Because sometimes what happens is that when we as believers are confronted by the world, or we live in a world that seems to be so anti-whatever-it-is-that-we-believe-in, is that that sometimes it can feel anything but victorious. Have you noticed that? Is that sometimes we, we have in our heads this idea that if I'm victorious in Christ... What ought that to look like? You ever thought about that? You know, what? If, I'm, if, if, if the victory is ours in Christ, I mean, the Bible says that all over the place. Well, how do you know? What do you base that on? Hmm? It's trust. It is trust, but the trust needs an object. The trust needs a, a, something that is the thing that I put my trust in. Yeah, we trust in it. But what do we base that trust on that says, okay, that's how I know I'm victorious, even when everything in my life and other people tell me I'm a loser. Everything else around me seems to not be very victorious, right? There's still something that we can turn to that says, oh, yeah, but, but this is the thing that I put my trust in. Somebody had their hand up. Uh, yeah, Glenn. He filled the presence for
2: anything right?
1: You do most of the time. The question would be, what do you do when you don't? Because we all go through ups and downs in life, and when sometimes the times when we feel up and joyous and everything's going the right way, I feel the presence of God, and I know that I can trust in it until I don't feel it. And then it's okay, okay. time to speak it. OK, all right. Uh, Bob?
2: Yeah, you're looking in the wrong direction.
1: Yep. <laughs> you know my wife keeps telling me that too. like All right, say that say that again because I don't think we heard that. You're
2: sure to be looking at Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith. That's correct. And you look at him and you rely on his promises not yourself.
1: That's actually that's totally right. Because see what happens is we start trying to define victory in terms of human definitions and human experience. And as soon as I do that, I'm taking miles off Jesus. The victory is won in Christ because Christ won the victory, right? And so I gotta, have, we have to keep that, keep that up there that, that, that I'm trusting, yes, I'm having faith, but it's in the risen Lord. That's where the victory is. It, no matter what happens to you in your life. No matter what the world tries to tell you, no matter how much turmoil there is going around around us, and there certainly is, that part, it's not that it's unimportant, it's just that's not where our focus is. Okay? Somebody else had their hand up. Yeah?
2: I think sometimes we mis-see the situation. We confuse victorious, and I think that's the appeal of the prosperity gospel. Everything's going smooth. Sure. And... To me, when you think about the victorious life, I have work to do for God. Yeah. I, I'm engaged. Right. And to me, that's what the victorious life ought to be. Right. That's what I ought to be looking for. Yeah. And that's not the way the world...
1: So he mentioned the prosperity gospel. So you familiar with what that terminology is, prosperity gospel? So uh, like... Um, a lot of prosperity gospel preachers are on TV. Can you think of one? Or six. Or nine. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a, it's an upbeat message that you hear from prosperity gospel. Very rarely do you hear about the idea that the wages of sin is death. You hardly ever hear that, you know, kind of idea. But it's its very promoting the idea that, well, if, if you have enough faith in Jesus or if, Jesus is active and present enough in your life, then you'll be prosperous, you'll be healthy, you'll be all those things. There is some merit to that, okay? But um, we don't put our faith and trust in that because, again, sometimes sickness happens. Death happens, right? Depression happens. There's a lot of things that happen in life as part of the human experience to Christians. Well, did that mean I didn't have enough faith? Did that mean that, you know, I didn't trust hard enough, I didn't pray enough, didn't go to church enough? That kind of thing. So it's just to to put the focus back where it belongs, as Bob pointed out, is what God, through Christ, has already done. That's where the victory is. And because of the fact that we live in a sinful world, very often the victory is hidden. Now, it's interesting that the victory, even though it's hidden, it's out of our sight, so to speak. Okay, Maybe sometimes out of our experience, very often... Notice what his, his uh, response to that is. He says, to the one who is victory, uh, victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. It's kind of interesting, the, the play on that word hidden. That in the same way, very often, the victory that we have in Christ is hidden because we still live in a sinful world, and frankly, we're contributing to it because we're sinners. He gives to us that which is hidden. So what is the manna thing? What's, that, what's the deal on manna? What's manna? It's bread, okay, in the story out of the Old Testament. We remember that story, many of us. The children of Israel left Egypt. They took everything with them that they could think of, and eventually they ran out of food. And so then they cried to the Lord, we're running out of food. And God said, okay, I'll send you these birds. So first it was quail. And then after that he said, on a daily basis I will sustain you with this gift of manna. And so I love the story of the manna, you know, collect only enough that you need for the day. Don't go hoarding. Right. Don't get a bunch of extra, because if you do, it only lasts a day and it'll rot and everybody will know you were the one. Right. Right. Okay. But on the Sabbath, what did he say? And get two days, yeah, because you're not supposed to gather stuff and work on the Sabbath. So, so that was a, that was a great story. So that would have been a story that that John's hearers and us would have resonated with. All right. So Jesus says, I'm going to give them some of the hidden manna. All right. And so that sort of suggests that there's a little bit of a sense of the bread of life comes in a way. That sometimes is unexpected, or perhaps a bit mysterious. Where my where my head immediately went to was uh, communion. Not that necessarily he's saying that, but 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 the 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 hidden nature of uh, Christ's uh, body and blood in with and under, as we often say in Lutheran world, uh, in with and under the bread and the wine. That that God provides a sustaining of faith. And it, we receive it through uh, in whatever form that bread of life comes. And he does it because uh, we live in a world where it's sometimes hard to see or experience the, uh, the nature of that victory that we have in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. You're buying totally into everything I'm telling you this morning. That's excellent. Let's keep that going. All right. Okay. Okay. And so I, met, I, I referenced uh, Exodus 16 uh, verse there, verse 32, uh, referencing the, uh, the manna. And notice in Exodus 16, what uh, God is telling the people through Moses is that I want you to take some of that manna and put it someplace where it can be part of something that we remember God's delivering us in the wilderness for generations to come, all right? But I love that part where he says, so they can see. See, I think, I think that God knows or knew how critical it is for us from time to time to move from the abstract of trust and faith in some invisible thing out there into the tangible that I can see. It's not that we put our faith in what we can see, it's not that, but it's just, it's like an act of mercy to, t- to say to somebody, yeah, I want you to have faith and trust in the invisibility and the mystery and all that, but here's something you can see. And that's the beauty of a sacramental life. That's one of the great things about, in our, in our Lutheran world, is a sacramental life. It means that we, uh, routinely, and we we in an encouraging way say don 't neglect a word and sacrament don 't neglect communion, keep coming to that because that 's a tangible uh, concrete way that God works through the spirit to sustain our faith and to assure us of forgiveness to do all that kind of thing, but there 's a taste there 's a touch, I guess there 's a little bit of a scent, you know, not with the bread, but Uh, I'm not encouraging you to take the wine and do like this at all. But trust me, trust me, all right? That would hold up the line. We don't even need that anymore. And so um, it's just that idea, though, is that, that there's a there's a, it, it's not that it would be any less real if you didn't have it, but the fact that you have something to taste and touch and, 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 and be present with is really a great gift that God has given to, uh, to the church. Okay. So he says, um, I will give the hidden manna. Now he also references this white stone. So I was looking around for, you know, what the heck is that talking about? And I found of all places in the biblical authority of national geographic, <laughs> is a reference to a white stone in Eastern cultures, a white stone is given when extending an invitation to a feast. Now, isn't that kind of interesting? Well, now, you should have just looked in the, the Lutheran study Bible. Well, why would I need to? Because I knew you would bring it up here in class. So A
2: white stone was used like an admission ticket to any, anything.
1: Yes. What I like about my definition <laughs> is that it's given by the host. It isn't like you just go out and find some white rock somewhere and then you say, here, I got my rock. You know, well, some people might try that. But, uh, but it's that the person who is the host for the feast will say, here's your invitation and it's the white stone with your name on it. Hmm. Yeah. OK. So I'll see your Lutheran study Bible and raise you one National Geographic. How about that? All right. Oh, I love you. All right. So 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 the new name part on there is really significant. If we look at Isaiah 62, two to four, the nations will see your vindication and all kings, your glory. It's talking about Israel. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name desolate or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hezbollah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you. What is going on in Isaiah's day when he writes that? Do you know where the children of Israel are when he's writing this? They're in exile. Yeah. And, and the land itself that was Israel and was Judah is desolate. It was decimated by uh, the Persians, by the Babylonians, by everybody that was marching through. And they, did le- they left a little bit of a remnant of people there that could kind of work the land. But there wasn't anything like the prosperous uh, life that they had had before. And so here they are out of their land. They're they're taken away from their temple, their their customs, their rituals, their foods, all that kind of thing. And what is Isaiah doing? He's really pointing them to the future and saying, these days are not going to last forever. That at some point uh, of God's choosing, no longer will it be all the bad stuff, the good stuff is coming. And what I like is where he says, for the Lord will take delight in you. How do you know when someone takes delight in you? You ever, be, you ever been around somebody that took delight in you? What's that, what's, how do you know that that happened?
2: They hug you. They laugh with you. They want to spend
1: time with you. They tell you you matter. Yeah. And even if they didn't do any of that, when you walked in the door, their face would light up. You know, the word delight, if you take it apart, it's delight. Delight came on. How about that? <laughs> for some people, we're still waiting for that to happen, aren't we? I don't think the light is coming on there. Yeah, uh, like, you, like these movies, you know, on TV, where the two people love each other, but they don't realize it yet. And one person walks in the door, and the other person sees them. And immediately, the music just comes up. And how many of us are maybe still waiting for that, huh? right? Yeah. Maybe we should try that sometime at church. You know, when somebody walks in the door, we just, the organ plays, and it would be, that would be quite amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, Max?
2: Yeah. Well, that's like a Hallmark movie movie.
1: Yes! It
2: makes me watch those, like, one after another. Oh, oh. Christmas
1: movies. And- oh. Oh, I know. Everybody's delighted. I know. I know. And they
2: all have happy endings. They all
1: have happy endings. And you, have you noticed that there's, I know this because this is happening at my house, too, is um, there's a moment where the two get together and then something happens that tears them apart. And everybody watching it is dying inside <laughs> because we all know that it was the stupidest thing that, dri- that pulled them apart. And then at the end, there's some sort of revelation of, oh, I didn't mean it, or whatever it was. And then they get back together. Yeah. yeah. Don't you wish life was like that?
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. It, there's an appeal to that, though, now. There's, an, there's a reason why the Hallmark Channel is so popular. It's a nice escape, right? We all would say, oh, that's not real life. Okay, we get that. But there's something about the idea that it all comes out good in the end. That the good guys win. So, like, if you ever watch old-time Westerns from, uh, like, the from the 50s and 60s, black and white is the best, which a lot of people today have no idea what black and white is. Okay, but, but um, those of us that grew up with it, that the... the uh, the show always ended with the good guys winning. And I can't remember when it was, but I do remember in the 60s, they started to change that because they said, well, we have to reflect, reflect real life. So they would have the, that it would end with the bad guys winning or there'd be some ethical dilemma, you know? And it was very upsetting uh, for those of us that, by golly, we want the good guys to win every time. That's yeah. There's a sequel. Do what? Oh, there's a sequel, that's it, yeah. More money, absolutely, that would be the whole thing. But I think today, particularly because we live in a time of, let's see if I can read this handwriting, because I know it's not mine, okay. When we live in a time of high anxiety, What happens in a time of high anxiety is that corporately or or collectively, we're all looking for that stability. We're all looking for something that we can count on. We're all looking for the good news that in the end, it's all gonna work out. It's all gonna be okay. And that's the appeal. I mean, I think Hallmark figured that out. They're going, okay, yeah. And so um, there's a lot of people. Your house, Hallmark is happening my house. It is anybody else's house anybody. Holy cow. Look at all this. Yeah So see that tells you that tells you that so um, let's see in two weeks I'm preaching because pastor Coleman's going out of town. Don't tell him that I told you that because it's a secret um (laughs) So maybe I should reference, maybe I should make the sermon like a Hallmark show. (laughs) There you go. How about that? Yeah. I might add, good thing I have two weeks to think on that. (laughs) Don't count on it, but maybe I'll play with it a little bit. Yeah.
2: This is just like, okay, the curve you, you go through in the men's retreat. Remember, I showed you that.
1: Text, oh, yeah, that's right. Where well, you disagreed with me on that. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no,
2: yours
1: is down. Oh, mine's upside down. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But
2: the reality is there's a whole book on it. It's yeah. the Joseph Campbell
1: Heroes Journey. It's, that's why that's successful. Yeah. It's, it's universal. Well, and again, it's that we all want to walk away feeling like something good happened, mm-hmm. as opposed to walking away with, like, in our real life. Like, you can't always guarantee that. And that's where I think this idea of being victorious comes in. See, even if the movie of your life never turns out where the good guy gets the win, or when everybody comes together and they're all doing kumbaya together, even if that never happens, at the end of the day, we still have the victory in Christ. And that is the best news of all that you could possibly have. Okay. So what is it that a new name does at the bottom here of page one? It offers a whole new life perspective. And think about that from the perspective or from the point of view that we all receive that in our baptism. See, that, that's the other half of the sacramental life is that we have, we have the, the, the gift of communion, which sustains our new life in him. But what started it in terms of what God was doing in, and whether that started as a little baby or that started later in life as a, as a teenager or as an adult, that that's what we're given in that. And so that new name offers some wonderful benefit and some wonderful blessings. That we have a new identity that is not rooted in race, gender, tribe, nationality, but as what? As a child of God. See. You and I can always say about ourselves, we're a child of God. That, and nothing changes that, all right? Then secondly, we have a new belonging, not individualistically or alone, but in a community of faith, hope, and love with God as our Father. That's why we keep hitting that every single time we're together. And that's why we say it's important to gather So that we can affirm that in each other, so that we can keep saying that to each other as a child of God who has God as our father. That's a community of faith. It's a community of faith, hope, and love. Third one is we have a new purpose in life as a steward or a servant, not ownership or control of yourself or others, but a service that glorifies God. We talked a little bit about that last week. The difference between being someone who looks at their life as that I own my life, you know, I own my body, I can do what I want, make whatever choices I want, okay. Or am I a steward of that, a servant of that, where I don't own it? God does. I I am beholden to Him, but I'm beholden to the one who loves me. I'm beholden to the one who has called me to be His own. And then finally, a new measure of worth or value that's not determined by the world's standards, but by God's delight in you by grace. So I want you to think about it this way, is that every single time God thinks of your name, his face lights up. That's pretty cool. Every single time, right, his face lights up. Have you noticed that with the masks on is a little tough sometimes to tell? You really end up having to focus on somebody's eyes to see if they're happy to see you or not, you know? And so we've kind of come up with a few little creative ways. Like when people come up for communion, on my side, I'm giving, uh, you know, intense eye contact, right? Because I'm wanting to convey the joy of seeing you, but also the joy of doing what it is I'm doing. So I'll do like this and I'll do this and go. So anybody, anybody watching is thinking, God, does he have like a crick in his neck or something like that? You know, but what I'm really trying to do is, is, is overcome the restriction of the mask to somehow convey the delight. And I think that's what God doesn't have to worry about that. God just says, Hey, When you walk in the door, when you're here, you light up the room, and that's the idea of delight. Okay, next page. Are we done with Pergamum? Huh? Yeah. We've milked that one about as far as we could go. So now he says in verse 18 and 19, he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So a little note here on Thyatira. It was the smallest of the seven cities, and it lay in an open valley southwest of Pergamum. Though it did not support a large worship center, it did have a fortune-telling shrine. It was the center of the dyeing industry and active in the trade of woolen goods. The many trade guilds held communal meals in which food sacrificed to idols was commonly served and associated with drunkenness and orgies. This w- there would have been economic pressure on the church members to participate in these events as a way to promote business and networking. So this was the beginning of the wild office party that uh, you know people talk about all the time. Well, that's, this, this is where... Uh, nothing new under the sun, uh, right? Okay. So, what is it that Jesus? We, he starts out with commending them. Okay. So, what is he commending them in them?
2: They were good at
1: business. Well, yeah, but he's talking now to the church, and he's saying, "I'm. I'm. There's some things that I want to say is the good news that you're, you, the business you're taking care of is what your deeds, right?" probably they were active in the community in some way that would have uh, spoken of, of God's love and the, and the difference between themselves and what was going on in the community, okay? Your love, your faith, your service, right? And he also commends them on the way that they have grown in all of that, that when they first were planted, maybe they were a little shy and they didn't want to make a big wave in the community, but he's saying now that I've seen some growth in that, and I commend you for what you are doing even more of. Okay? So let's go to verse 20 and see what he, uh, he wants to uh, correct them with. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she must lead my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Oh, that's a nice touchy-feely right right there, huh? Uh, You know, that would get everybody's attention, that one. Okay, so he starts out by saying, you tolerate this woman Jezebel, and whether that was her name or not, or if that was the reference to uh, the Old Testament uh, reference to Jezebel, we'll talk about that in a second, That, that we don't know. But it was just this idea that everybody knew exactly who he was was talking about because she called herself or claimed to be a prophet. Today, we probably would say that she was an influencer. Are you familiar with that? That terminology, you know, like on social media now, they talk about somebody as an influencer and whoever can get other people to do stuff or go wear certain clothes or eat food or go to certain places, then I guess they can make a lot of money being an influencer, I guess, is what they do. So that's what was going on here. Nothing against the profession of being an influencer, but obviously there was some really bad stuff that was going on here. So if we look at First Kings 16, 29 to 31, we get the reference from the Old Testament in terms of what uh, that's talking about. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So what we're told is is that probably what happened and this was very common in the days of uh, in the days of Israel and of Judah where the, whoever was the king would seek to make a political alliance maybe with enemies or with somebody that was in the neighboring area so that they could form this like uh, confederation of of nations for the purpose of unity and also self-defense and those kinds of things. And so very often the way that they would uh, conduct that they, the, the king from the neighboring town or the neighboring area would give his daughter in marriage to the king. And so that kind of started with Solomon. Solomon is the one that we uh, read most about, but that became something that was a common thing. It was common in the pagan world, and so in, in very many ways the kings of Israel and Judah just simply decided we're going to follow the ways of the world as well. So anyway, this... Uh, this woman Jezebel, actually from the Old Testament, was someone who influenced Ahab to, um, to, to redirect uh, Israel's focus away from worshiping the only God into um, worshiping idols. And that was always the problem, was it not? As Israel would, uh, children of Israel would make their way across the wilderness and into the promised land, that was the thing that God continually warned them against. Do, do not worship other gods. Don't absorb or accommodate yourself to the culture around you. Because if you do it, what's going to happen eventually is that you're going to give up on the worship of God alone, and you're going to move into idolatry. So the, the verse there about considering it trivial in First Kings, an Old Testament king who follows Solomon's death, that's who this is, As king of Judah, he brought idolatry to Judah by erecting pagan temples. Now Solomon had actually built temples to provide a safe place for his many pagan wives. His sin was to attempt to synchronize, that means to join together or to to combine pagan worship with the worship of Yahweh. His, which was his attempt to unify the kingdom through religious compromise. So you can see where, from purely a political or a national perspective, a worldly king would think in terms of doing that, right? You can't, he would say, well, you can't have all these religions and you can't have all these tribes and you can't have everybody who is battling against each other because each one of them is saying mine is right and yours is wrong. So you'd have all of these skirmishes going on. And the king is going to look at that politically and say, we can't have that. There, there's not enough unity here. We, we are weakened by a lack of that unity politically. So what's the king going to try to do? He's going to try to get... This group and that group and, and that tribe and this tribe and all their religions and blend them together so that now we can have unity. What's the problem with that? Or the risk? What's the risk?
2: Falling away from the unity. Yeah. You believe the power of the word
1: you dilute it. That's what you do. And see, that was the problem. See, it it probably would have been easier if God had come along initially and said, I'm not the only one. (laughs) Right? I mean, that would have worked a whole lot better if he had said, well, I'm the first among many, but you know, there are others. Well, that isn't what God said. And what did God say? (laughs) I'm the only one. And if you want to worship me, then it's just me by, and it's nobody else. And we're not all on an equal plane. It's me, and then there's nobody else. Well, that, that doesn't go with a philosophy that says, well, we want to honor and respect all of them, so all of them we'll put on the same plane. And then what we'll do is we'll go one step further and say that all of them are merely a different name for the same God. So whether you say Allah or you say Nirvana or whatever you say, whatever would be the, the name that you give according to your own tribe and to your own language and your own culture, we would understand that those are just simply different names for the same God. Well, the problem is it's not because all those other gods focus on what you have to do in order to appease a God, and there's no place, uh, there's no name or no word in all those other religions and all those other approaches for the idea that God would sacrifice himself for you. So see, that, that's the, the dilemma there, the problem is, is that in order to make universalism work, and that's what we're talking about, universalism, in order to make it work, you have to redefine who God is. And God says, I'm not having any of that. You, know, you can't save yourself. You can't do enough good things. You can't outdo your sin by some good behavior or even sincerity on your part. You can't do it. And yet that's the basis for all of those other religions. And so, see, that's when God said there's only one God and you worship that God only, first commandment, right, second commandment, then that, that was in opposition to. Yeah, Carl. This
2: word tolerated. Raises a, a point that I ran into this or heard this past week.
1: Oh, tolerance is a huge word today. Yeah. yeah.
2: But this person, this lady, was talking about what happened to her pastor's husband. Oh, up okay. To, up in Canada. Yeah. And the cultural change that's going on up there is like in, our culture. In Canada, it's big. It's slowly encroaching mm-hmm. on us. And she said, we We're tolerating this, and it's like. Boiling a frog slowly so it never knows it's being boiled
1: enough. I know the imagery of that just sort of kills me. <laughs> it was but perfect, I right? get it, yeah. Yeah. Because it's swimming faster and faster and faster, and then it there you can't it reaches that point where you can never do no more. It's getting hotter and hotter yeah. Until it dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the dilemma I think that they had in many ways is a dilemma that we have. Is How do you show respect for other people's beliefs and maybe in some sense for them? And perhaps compassion should be thrown in there as well, okay? How do you do that at the same time that you stand firm on what your own biblical beliefs are and the truth of God's word? See, how do you do that? How do you balance it in such a way that you can still show respect, you still show love, you still show compassion, at the same time that you're putting a boundary and you're saying, I'm not going to cross that line. Because God's word is what informs me, is, is what saves me. And if I start drifting, if I start moving that line and start drifting, then then there's a very real possibility that I get to where... I'm trading compassion for idolatry. Does, that, show does this make sense?
2: Mm-hmm. If it's evil, you don't show respect.
1: You show respect for the person. You sure do. Maybe
2: to the person, but not for what they believe.
1: That's correct. And so the, what, I'm, what I'm proposing or what I'm throwing out there is that dilemma. See, I think for a lot of people today, there's confusion about that. The confusion is, is that if I don't, that the idea of tolerating that line being crossed, if I do that, then then I show I love you. Then I show I have compassion for you. Then I show I have empathy for you, right? And so what happens is I'm fuzzing up the first commandment. And what was happening here was they weren't just fuzzing up the first commandment. They were allowing themselves to be... Uh, influenced in terms of the first commandment to where it was like the first commandment wasn't existing anymore and they probably did it because they maybe this person was somebody's relative you know i don't know maybe it was somebody's friend and they thought oh my gosh if we say anything against her she might leave or the whole family might leave or the whole tribe might leave we can't do that i mean you can see where humanly they might have thought that okay yeah kathy yeah. To your question, I think
2: the only thing we really can do in the free society that we have, the only we we have to look at ourselves first. Mm-hmm. How are we deporting ourselves in this society? Yeah. We can't,
1: How we're, can't, we're behaving and acting. Exactly. Okay. So
2: we, I can't. If this is your belief, you know, me castigating or throwing rocks and stones on it, that's not. That's not going to work. It's only going to make them and it or feel it. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of that in the last 20, last year. So I think you only can look at yourself. Sure. How are you acting? How are you treating people? So okay. you can communicate what your beliefs are by way, ways that people can see.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, and I agree with that in terms of how we treat each other and those outside. Okay, I, again, I would go back to the respect idea compassion, empathy, I can do all those things. But in order to do that well, I've got to be real secure in what I believe. And I can't be fuzzy about that because it will get too easy to be uh, influenced by this. Have you ever thought about why is it so much easier for someone to be influenced toward evil than for good? You ever thought about that? Because it is. Huh? What? It's our basic nature. It's our basic It's because we have the basic nature, which is a sinful nature. And the Bible talks about that. The Bible makes no, no, no bones about that, right? The sinful nature is like a magnet. And the magnet will attract that. And that because it's part of us, you know, it sort, of, um, it sort of grabs on to that part of us that, that kind of wants things to be the way we want it to be, Right? And so when someone comes along and offers that or sort of dangles the possibility of that in front of us, oh man, we're, we're there. And, and really, that's been going on since the garden, right? I mean, really, nothing's changed since, you know, a million years ago or 6,000, which however you date the earth, right? Um, but but, it, but it, it just is, that's how it is. Yeah. Dennis.
2: I'm reminded of a quote by Abraham Lincoln. He said, "Those who write the songs of the nation will capture its soul." Yeah. Yeah. So whatever the nation sings or thinks about or reads, <laughs> yeah, over and over again, it sticks in your mind. <laughs> will
1: capture. I'll bet he was Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. Could be. All right. Well, let's keep going. All right. So what is it again? We've seen this before. That this Jezebel person is leading the servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We talked about that last week. Remember that that the eating of food isn't just the eating of the food, but it's the communal meal in which it took place. And so, when it took place in this in this banquet that they would be having, there was lots of eating and drinking and gluttony and all kinds of stuff, and 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 we're offering sacrifices in the meal to this pagan god, the Baal gods, or the Asheroth gods, that we uh, are saying that that's who has uh, given us prosperity for, the, for, the, uh, for our lives. Total idolatry. And then it would lead into and was promoted to be um, uh, orgies and sexual immorality. Okay, And so that's why, that's why the Bible links the two together, because one leads necessarily to the other. So what he says is is that he has given her time. This is very interesting. He's given her time to repent of her immorality. It tells us a lot about God's forbearance, God's patience, that he allows us to remain in our sin as awful as it may be, as destructive as it may be. As influential as it may be to other people, he allows that person to remain in that sin. And the reason why he does it is because he's giving that person time to repent. So the question is, what is it that would lead a person who is in that sin and to some degree enjoying that sin or feels satisfied by that sin? What is it then that would even lead that person to repent in the first place? Why would he or she? Evie? Pardon? Just
2: time to recognize
1: what
2: she is doing.
1: And what would lead her to recognize it as destructive for her life that she would need to repent for? Yeah. It's a lousy life. It's promoted by the society and the world as being, oh, man, this is the way you want to live your life. This is, you have freedom. No one's telling you what to do. No one's making rules like all those religions. You know, they're just all about rules. And plus they want your money. You know, those two things. That's all religion is. That's all the church is. Is a bunch of people that are making rules. If you want to live a great life, Get rid of the rules. Get rid of religion. And you get to decide for yourself what's right. You get to decide what's true. And then live your truth. And I think what happens is even though that saddens God, he says, I got to give you some time to see how that's going to unravel things for you in order for you to be receptive to what the gospel has to say. And so, you know, that's kind of one of those things that I think to myself, you know when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and ate the fruit, and the first thing they did was what? Jump in the bushes. That was the first thing. That's always what we do. We hide. Then the second thing they did was what? Cover with fig leaves. Okay? I've always wondered to myself, how long did God leave them in that state? (laughs) You know, because the Bible doesn't say, it just says, you know, one day God's walking in the garden. And he says, where are you? I mean, that kind of thing. But we're not really told how long. And I'm thinking, if it had been me, I would have needed at least nine or ten days to figure out that the fig leaves aren't working. <laughs> right? Because, what? I mean, what's the deal with a fig leaf? When you pull a plant off of the stem, it's all green. Well, how long does it take for it to shrivel up and... And blow away, and then you go, oh, my gosh, that didn't work so well. Right? Right? Yeah, so it might have taken maybe a repetition of two or three days for them to see the futility of trying to cover their own sin with human effort. And by that time, when God comes in and says, where are you, and what is this you have done? See? They're more ready. Now, Adam wasn't ready because he was still blaming Eve.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he should have seen the futility of that one. Boy, let me tell you, right? Oh, boy. He probably, you know, he probably, she probably reminded of that, you know, after, they're, after they were expelled from the garden. But it's just to say that, that sometimes we get impatient with God because we think that with all of the degradation going on in the world, why doesn't he just come right back now and nail everybody? Why can't we just get a little Sodom and Gomorrah going here, Lord, right? Little, little fire and brimstone, huh? Cooking people, let's get it going. And we think... We think that he ought to do that in a hurry, that he ought to hurry up. And what happens is we're reminded in the Bible that again and again, I think it's in Romans, where it talks about this idea that God's slowness is meant to give the world time to repent and come back to him. So we should not understand slowness as we understand it but we need to think of it as God sees it, is that because he desires all people to be saved and come to know him and spend eternity with him in heaven. See, God says, I I want that so much for the world, but if the world is not receptive to it, then how will I help convince them of it? Maybe the way to do it is just say, okay, live your life without me and see what that's like. A little bit of the prodigal son story, wouldn't you say? The father let the son go. He didn't try to say, no, no, son, don't do it, don't do it, right? And then when his son is out feeding the hogs and the pigs, he doesn't run out there and rescue him. No, he realizes that's what it's going to take for that person to say, oh, this life is crummy. Think how much better I had it when I was working with and living at my father's house. And maybe that's what that is. And so it is kind of interesting here that he says that, you know, I have given her time to repent. But notice the sad part of this. She is unwilling. And when finally that point is reached, and only God knows when that is because he's looking in the heart. We can't, we can't look in the heart. But then he says, okay, then here's what's going to happen. I will cast her on a bed of suffering, that could be physical, could be spiritual. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, again, physical, uh, uh, spiritual, we're not sure which one that is, unless they what? Repent of their ways, right? I will strike her children dead. Boy, that's pretty ominous. Again, physical, spiritual, not sure, but dead is, that word dead in the Bible is used both ways. A temporal death, obviously, but also a spiritual death. And then here's the, 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 the proclamation of this. He says, then only a few of the churches will know. Is that what he says? No. He says, all the churches will know. What? That I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There is some responsibility that we in the Christian community bear with each other. See, notice that Jesus is not going after society here and saying, you need to go out and change society. He's saying, tend to your own. Now, we share the good news with society. But the warning here is within the churches to the churches themselves. And I would say because churches have sinners in it, I think we have enough to do in working on ourselves. Right? right? And if doing that will translate into being a positive witness to the people around us, then that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. But our focus is on the community of faith. Yeah? Yeah. Carl,
2: I think, though, that the church has a responsibility to really continue to emphasize the scriptural, spiritual principles that that we are founded on in Jesus Christ on a regular basis and emphasize that we need to convey and hold our, our culture to those responsibilities. We can't walk away or we're going to be that frog in that boiling water.
1: That's right. So we have to be discerning about how to do that, okay? But we have to do it. I think the question for a lot of people is, and this is the unexpected side of it, because the culture in society has changed so much from the 1950s and 60s when most of us could say, oh, everybody in my neighborhood goes to church, okay? Is that the messaging that's coming from the world is getting to our people way earlier, in a more profound way than we have expected. We're caught a little bit by surprise, though maybe we shouldn't have been, but you know, sometimes that happens. When you grow up in the church, sometimes what happens is you think to yourself, I don't really need to talk about all that anyway because everybody already knows it. And so we don't talk about it as much. We don't share it as much. And what happens is, and it is now, is that as we hold to the values that we have, the biblical values and the the values of faith and life and the commandments and the whole thing, there's pushback big time. And so we have to be prepared for that. But the reason why it's worth it to do it, even though there might be some negative consequences that come from it, is because look what is at stake eternity is at stake and we want to share that with the world by the way pastor Coleman mentioned that at the end of the sermon did anybody catch that ah good you're listening all the way to the end that is a miracle in and of itself yeah okay but but again see that's the thing that's why we have to keep saying that we got it has to be about sharing it it can't be just that we say oh thank goodness I'm going to heaven Right. Well, I'm glad I am. But if that's all it is, then I'm not sharing that with you. Yeah, Peggy. Uh,
2: do, you, do you have people that would say to you when you're trying to think about sharing witnessing like, like we're called to do, that they would respond by saying, God knows everyone that's going to go to heaven. It's, it, he knows it from before was happening, from all eternity. Mm-hmm. Why should
1: I go out and try to convert somebody or tell them about the message? Because the book the names are written in the book of life. So yeah. father,
2: because right it's already been determined. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, theologically difference in that <laughs> Theologically that's what Calvin believed in double predestination. So Presbyterians, depending on how um, Calvinistic they are, that's in their teaching, okay? And there's a number of Lutherans that are sort of Lutheran Calvinists that way, okay? Well, that, we all do that. We just hyphenate. You know, we add stuff and hyphenate. Um, but, but what's problematic about that then is that if I believe it that way, then why do evangelism? Why, why go out? because uh, we are God already knows okay
2: so one thing on that thought pastor just when you ask that question I found in, in, in anything that I've done when I'm able to speak or teach it yeah it proves I actually have thought about it and learned it and have soaked it in myself yeah so part of what my, my counter to your question would be is teaching it and speaking about it is going to continue your learning. And your ability to digest and be able to bring things up when you need them, and, and I mean, I see this in my life all the time. I am able to witness to myself a lot better because I've spent time trying to think about how would I answer someone's question like that. So, okay, so I've, it's benefit to you. Yes, ma'am. I've always that Trying to teach means you must really learn, and you've got to be able to be ready for all the questions that are going to come. And it, it's very introspective to have that kind of experience, at least. For
1: the other part of it is is that sometimes we think that what's written in the book of life, and this is where you get into, like, okay, how do we figure out God's... How does our little brain figure out God's big brain?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and so then, I'm already getting a headache thinking about that. But it's, it's just a little bit of thinking, if you think about it from the predestined point of view, that's meant for comfort. That's not meant to say then you don't need to go out and evangelize. Because when God, when God, yeah, God already knows, but that doesn't preclude me from the opportunity and the responsibility that I have to share the good news. Otherwise, why go make disciples of all nations? See, why do that? Right. Yeah. And,
2: of course, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. And that yeah. is that this is my thinking, right. that I need to do this. Yeah. But if someone asks or brings this point up, mm-hmm. is this kind of what you tell them? This is the reason you think you're doing it. I'm talking
1: about really kind of speaking to a believer yeah. that says, I don't need to do this. Yeah. I don't need to spend my time doing this. Right. People say, please, you did go or right. Sometimes people say that because they don't want to do it. And then they find a Bible verse that will fit that why they shouldn't do it. <laughs> I know that none of us would ever do that, would we? But, but we all have our favorite verse. And so some of it humanly is from that perspective. But I do think that theologically, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what predestination is really talking about and what its purpose is. Calvin and Luther, they were head knocking over this. And here we are, you know, 500 years later and we're still head knocking over it. So there's still some significant disagreement on that, okay? So hopefully I was able to dodge that question uh, perfectly, uh, but not too much. Because we, we have to close for today, okay? So hang on to your questions, uh, because as is the normal thing, we didn't quite get through the whole thing, and so we'll just pick it up. We'll pick it up next week. Almost did, I know. We're living in the joy of the almost here, all right? <laughs> all right, very good. Let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. It, it just becomes so obvious to us that really nothing in the world has changed all that much. Everybody... Is struggling with uh, the uncertainty of, of life in this world, and then because of sin and our sinful nature, we just naturally think, well, the best thing to do then is think only of ourselves and nobody else, and that is part of the the problem that that you, Lord, have have seen in our world from 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 almost, almost from day one, and yet in your love for us, you're so patient, you're. You don't just wipe everybody out. There isn't just like a giant, another giant flood coming in because you get disgusted and you get say, say oh, it's just not going to work. No, Lord, we thank you for your forbearance and your patience and your love for us that you give us time to see the futility of thinking that it's all about us and not about you. So, Lord, as we take that in, as we truly hear that and take it to heart in our own lives, I would simply pray that we would look around in the world around us and see that there are people also struggling with that. Give us some discernment. Give us some some empathy and some compassion for that. But at the same time, keep us firm in 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 the faith that we have in your word as truth and the fact that your word leads to eternal salvation. So, Lord, as we celebrate now, Palm Sunday today and as we move through Holy Week and and toward the great celebration of Easter, keep us mindful of that and uh, keep us alert to opportunities to share that with others around us. So watch over us until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.